Good morning, everyone. Today we will be reading Psalms 32, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept my silent, my bones wasted away. Through my growing all day long, for day and night, your hand was very heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. Good morning. Good, morning. Good to be back with you all. Missed you. Um, you know, we're, we're doing this series on spiritual uh, training, and the basic idea, remember, is that um, so much of what is true when we want to grow in any area of life is, is true also for the spiritual life. And so if you wanted to do something insane like run a marathon, you could read a lot of books on running marathons. You could watch YouTube videos. You could hear from all the experts. You could go watch people run marathons. Uh, you could, what else could you do? Oh, you could invite the church to gather around you and pray for the like, spiritual power of marathon running. But if you never got out and actually trained to run a marathon, if you, ne if you never practiced, well, you wouldn't be able to run a marathon. And, and so we, we know this God in Jesus who wants us to grow in our love of God and love of other people, and who also wants us to grow in our ability to, um, to trust God, to trust the Father's love for us. And you, know, you can listen to a thousand sermons about that. You could read uh, lots of books. You could read this book, uh, the most important book of all. Um, you could watch YouTube videos. You could listen to podcasts. But if you never actually um, start training your soul to grow in love, um, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So that's the idea. We're looking at different, different ways that the church historically has said, like, oh, here are some ways that we can actually practice. You know, they're often called spiritual disciplines. We can uh, do things that do things to us, that shape our souls in the ways of love. So, uh, you all heard from Nelson on silence and solitude. You heard from Josh on Haga, 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 on, uh, is that what he did? Haga, Haga, yeah. On, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, on, on uh, what is it? Meditating on scripture. Have any of you been trying these practices? Some of you, good. If you, haven't, if you haven't tried those, it's unlikely you're going to try this one, because this gets harder. This gets a little bit more threatening. We're talking about the spiritual practice of confessing sin, confession. And instead of just talking right off the bat about confession, I want to 
I want to enter into this by talking about forgiveness. Um, because one of, the, one of the astounding messages, really, of the Christian faith is that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Uh, that like we really are loved and forgiven in the most complete and perfect way. And, and so if we were to go to Scripture to tease this out, like there are all kinds of places we might look, but there's one place early in Ephesians that I especially like where the Apostle Paul says that in Jesus we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. Let's, uh, let's haga on that for a little bit. Haga, haga, haga. So it's like fuzzy, fuzzy bear, who is it who does that? Um, like, uh, what, what if we had forgiveness according to our ability to confess properly and appropriately? See, that would be different, wouldn't it? Um, it's, that's not what Paul says. He says that we have forgiveness according to grace, the riches of grace. And, and, and what if Paul had said, like, we have forgiveness of sin according to the riches of, like, uh, I don't know, Danny Peck's grace? Well, that'd be good because Danny Peck is a gracious dude. Um, but we might also wonder, how rich is Danny in grace? It's not what Paul says. He says that we have forgiveness of our sin according to the riches of God's grace. And so a question we, we could ask is like, well, how rich is God in grace? How rich is God in grace? Like kind of rich? A little bit rich? We might wonder, at, at what point do God's riches in grace run out? Um, like maybe God's got enough grace to cover a lot of little sins, but it's the really big ones that, that kind of um, deplete God's resources or, or stretch him, exhaust his, his ability to forgive. Or maybe the riches of his grace can cover like a level six sin, but a level seven sin, uh, that's when it gets really iffy. Or maybe God is rich enough in grace to forgive you 77 times, but not 78. Or maybe God is rich enough in grace to cover like 78 years of sinning. But as soon as you turn 79, watch out. <laughs> No, of course not. I mean, it's absurd to speak like that because uh, we're talking about God. God is extravagantly rich in grace, like inexhaustibly rich in grace, like rich in a way that can't be depleted. And so over and over again, forgiveness isn't held out to us as a possibility. You might be forgiven if, if you jump through these hoops. You might be forgiven if you do X, Y, and Z. No, um, forgiveness is just held out to us as a reality, that in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. Like God is not holding your sin against you. But here's the thing. It's one thing to be perfectly forgiven and, and so loved like that. And it's another thing to know that you're perfectly forgiven and loved like that. And I think that that difference is why God has given us this practice of confession. Confession is how we live into the reality of being both fully known and completely loved. Uh, it, it's how we live into the reality of God's forgiveness. And so it's a practice, family, that is really meant to bring 
um, healing into our lives and restoration. We can see this when we look at um, the Psalm of David. Look carefully at what he says. Listen again to the opening lines. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, uh, who is the blessed person? Um, our religious instinct might be to say that the blessed person is the flawless person. Like the person who never messes up, the person who never wrongs God or who wrongs other people. Um, the blessed person, we might be inclined to say, is the person who doesn't need forgiveness. Um, but that's not what David says. David says, no, the blessed person is the sinner who experiences the forgiveness of God, uh, who doesn't try to hide sin, but who actually brings it out into the light and then receives God's forgiveness. And this is so hard for us. It's so hard for us. I mean, bringing sin into the light is something that we don't like to do. We don't want to do it most of the time. It can feel like such a threat. And so in verse 5, David talks about covering his iniquity. And that language echoes Genesis chapter 3. You remember that story, Adam and Eve. They eat from that one tree that they're not supposed to eat from, and which is a way of, of saying that you know, they, they came to a point of not trusting uh, God's love, not relying on his grace. And um, the result was that like, they were filled with this profound sense of guilt and shame. And they saw for the first time, this is how we see it in the narrative, that they see for the first time that they are naked. And what's their immediate instinct? Yeah, to hide, to run, to take cover. Um, and, and family, that is probably your instinct too. I know it's my instinct. Like It's kind of the human experience that when we realize that something is wrong with us, or that we've done wrong, and that our souls are warped in one way or another, um, when we recognize the presence of darkness within us, um, our reaction, uh, our instinct, is to cover up. It's to hide. It's to run away. And then, uh, to pretend like things are fine. Um, and, and you might think that this shouldn't be an issue at all for, for people who um, are Christians, but actually, like, religious people... Uh, can be the very worst in this area. <laughs> like, we can be the most defensive about our sin and the best at hiding it. And <clears throat> I think that what so often happens in our hearts is we, we kind of default to this mode of thinking that um, our hope in life is to be good enough that God will accept us. And if we make that kind of the basis of our salvation, like the last thing in the world we would ever want to do is acknowledge our wrongdoing, acknowledge our sin, acknowledge that we aren't okay. Because that calls everything into question. Sometimes in the church we measure our growth in spirituality by how little we're sinning, which turns the Christian life into a game of hiding. And so we become so good at minimizing sin and denying sin and justifying sin and coming up with excuses for our sin or blaming our sin on someone else. Um, but what we really struggle with is confessing our sin and acknowledging it. 
So, so we become experts at all of these different forms of hiding. And the result really is ruinous. Uh, when I kept silent, David says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So what David is saying is that there's a way that you can um, carry your sin around with you in secret, um, hiding it, covering it up, and that that brings death. That kills you. Uh, it, it, it makes you waste away. Now, why is that? Because as long as, long as we do that, as long as we keep our sin with us and we keep it hidden, we keep it covered up, um, we can only know ourselves as sinners, but we cannot know ourselves as um, fully known and fully loved sinners. Like, we can only know our sin ourselves as sinners, but we can't know ourselves as forgiven sinners. In order to know that, in order to know that we are not only sinners, but also um, known and loved sinners, not only sinners, but also completely forgiven sinners, what do we have to do? Got to confess. And so in verse 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened? What happened? Yeah, forgiveness. God forgave his iniquity. Um, so you can kind of just like see this turn in the psalm that, that there's, there's joy here, there's freedom, there's relief. Um, David confesses his sin, and he experiences God's grace. Um, he comes out of hiding, and God doesn't destroy him. Uh, God receives him, and God forgives him. And, and family, don't you know that the same will be true for you? Don't you know that the same will be true for you? That you can um, come out of hiding, and you won't be cast off. You can come home and you won't be rejected. It's so interesting what David says in verse 7. He says to God, you are a hiding place for me. See, it's like he's no longer hiding from God. He's hiding in God. It's like he has, um, he has uncovered his sin. He's brought it into the light. He's experienced the sweetness of God's forgiveness and he sees that in God, he now has this place of absolute security. Like his, his security doesn't depend at all on him being like this um, sinless human being. No, it, he is hiding in God. Um, it's one thing to be perfectly forgiven and loved like that. And it's another thing to know, like, to, to really experience that you are perfectly forgiven and loved like that. And now David knows it. Now he he experiences it. And so um, confession is a practice that helps us live into this reality. Um, I want to mention just a few things that you might begin doing if you're not already doing these things that will just help you with this practice. Um, one, and, oh, and, and these get like this is what's going to happen. I'm going to list these three things, and the first one you're going to be like, oh, that's great. I'll start doing that right away. And then the second one you're going to be like, eh, I'm not thrilled about that. And then the third one you're going to say, I don't want to do this at all. Uh, you're not going to want to do this. 
But nevertheless, here's the invitation for this, this spiritual practice. Um, the first one is, is simple enough. I, I just want to encourage you, if you're not already, to make uh, confession just a regular part of your life with God so that this becomes part of your prayer life, so that you're, you're regularly in your time with God um, confessing sin. Um, that's easy. You're thinking, I can do that. And, and so second, um, I want you to, I want to invite you to, um, <laughs> to go a little bit deeper and to not just confess sin in some abstract, generic way, but to drill down and really try to do some self-examination about, like, how does idolatry work in your heart? Like, how, what are the particular ways that your heart is in rebellion against God? And then um, to more specifically bring those places of um, brokenness and sin before God, trusting that you will find him eager to forgive you. Um, if, you, if your confession only ever stays at like the really general, impersonal level, chances are your experience of God's forgiveness will only stay at the very general and impersonal level. And so you remember that t-shirt, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, the, the guy who had the shirt that said, Jesus loves you, and then as you get closer, you see that underneath there's tiny font that says, of course, he loves everyone, which, uh, you know, it takes something like so wonderful and just makes it like, kind of like this very generic and personal reality. Well, if you, if you only ever confess your sin in, in really impersonal ways, you're only going to experience the forgiveness of sin like that. Like, yeah, God forgives you, of course. It's kind of just what God does, which doesn't exactly warm the heart. And so the challenge is to get specific. I mean, it's one thing to confess, I'm a sinner, and it's another thing to confess... I love money too much, or I don't really trust God to take care of me, or I have a problem with pornography, or I'm constantly anxious about having enough, or I am regularly impatient with my children, or I have been unfaithful to my spouse, or um, I have an anger problem, or I like regularly manipulate people by lying and deceiving them. Like, if you want to experience um, forgiveness in concrete, real ways that intersect with what's going on in your heart, um, the invitation is, well, get specific about the sin going on in your heart. Um, so that's a little bit more challenging. And then here's, here's the third uh, challenge. I want to invite you to find at least one flesh and blood human being with whom you can share, with whom you can confess your sin in those more specific kinds of ways. And, and so I mean like an actual person. Uh, um, we often have corporate confession of sin and we do that in a way that, um, that I have found to be like extraordinarily vulnerable, unusually vulnerable when I visit other churches and see how they do confession of sin. And I think that that's good, but even, even at that level, like they're, like, it's a good thing that in this room we aren't, we aren't going, like, as deep as we can go with the darkness within. That would be inappropriate in a context of 50 or 60 people. But you need to have at least one human being in your life who, like, uh, you've confessed your sin to in real ways. Not just, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner 
like this and like this and like this. And, and someone who can, um, who can hear that and who can sit with you in it and then who can look you in the eye and say, um, in Jesus, you're forgiven. And then who can encourage you on in love. And so, I mean, all kind. I mean, there might be caveats. Uh, I mean, not caveats, but just like, clearly this needs to be done with wisdom. Like this needs to be some, someone who you trust. And I think there's an invitation uh, implied in this for all of us family that um, if we're going to be serious about taking up this practice, we need to be. We need to work on becoming the kind of people who can also be on the receiving end of that. Who can receive someone's confession without um, a, a look of shock or dismay coming over our face, uh, without us heaping um, condemnation or guilt or shame upon the person, but who can who. We need to become people who really know how to sit with a brother or sister at the foot of the cross with no sense of superiority and hear confession, not of generic sin, not of abstract sin, but of actual sin. Does that make sense? All right. So that's the, cha- that's the invitation and the challenge. Um, some of you might already d- be doing this, in which case continue on, and, and maybe, maybe we need you to like, teach us how to do that, be models for us. But um, some of you maybe have never done that, and that's the invitation for you, is to find one person um, who can hear your sin and then who can extend God's forgiveness to you. So that can feel really risky, right? I see a lot of blank faces. <laughs> yes, it can. It can. It can. Um, I think Jesus wants us to know that there really is nothing to fear. Um, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus, he declared the forgiveness of sin, and he did it in lots of different ways. Like sometimes he would just say, he would just say sometimes, your sin is forgiven. Sometimes he would say that to people who weren't even thinking about sin, who weren't even confessing sin or repenting of sin or anything. He would just say, your sin is forgiven. That's pretty cool. Um, sometimes Jesus would declare the forgiveness of sin by telling stories. Such a good storyteller. And so you remember, he once told a story about a father who had two sons. You know this one. You know how this one goes. The younger son, one day, he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance. In other words, I want to start living today as if you're already dead is not the kind of thing a dad wants to hear from his son. It's not, it's not a right request to make. It's like it's a wrong request to make. It's totally inappropriate. And what's, I mean, one of the many amazing things in the story Jesus tells is that um, the father goes along with it, that he does it. Uh, he divides up his property and, and what it says in Luke, you can read about this in Luke 15, it literally says that he divided up his life. He took his life and he, di- he divided it up. And so the son, he takes his share of the stuff and he, he goes off into a far country and he just burns through it. He wastes it all. It's gone. And then you remember the way Jesus tells the story, like a famine comes into the land. And so everyone is hungry. No one has enough to eat. But uh, 
presumably those with resources can find a way to make it by while the son has nothing. And so he has to hire himself out um, to one of the people of that far country. And you remember Jesus <laughs> is telling this story about a Jewish son. And so moving into a far country, he's moved into Gentile territory. And so he's like surrounded by um, you know, godless pagans. And that's already bad enough. But then he has to go, um, he's, he, he hires himself out and he's sent to work with the pigs. And so this is Jesus' way of making it clear that, like, it's just, it's, it's gone from bad to worse to, like, incredibly bad. And just when you think it couldn't be possibly worse, uh, Jesus has this detail. He was so hungry that he was longing to be fed by the pig food, but no one would even give him that. <laughs> so this guy's life has just uh, totally come apart and... Uh, he, he has rebelled against God and he's rebelled against his father and his life is in shambles. And then one day he's sitting there with the pigs longing to be fed by their food and he realizes, now wait a second, like, uh, meanwhile, my dad has servants in his home who are eating, who are cared for, who have what they need. And so he, he begins to come up with a plan that includes confession. But it's not, it's not a good confession. It's like a really self-serving, calculated confession. It's, it's basically a plan not to starve to death that happens to include kind of like the illusion of confession. And so he, he thinks, what I'll do is I'll get up and I'll go, I'll go to my dad and I'll say, Dad, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but will you just take me back as a servant? Bring me, bring me back into your home as a servant. Um, and so he gets up and he starts to head home. And you remember how the story goes. Um, Jesus says that, that it was while he was still a long way off. his father sees him and he hikes up his robe and he sprints and he throws his arms around his son and he kisses his son and uh, you know he says like uh, you know, bring the, the best robe and bring the ring and bring the fatted calf and let's kill it because the only thing the father wanted to do in that moment was celebrate. Celebrate. And, um, and so that's what they do. They celebrate. I mean, the, the dad doesn't even let the son get through his, you know, his little um, self, self-serving confession. They just celebrate. Now, if we ask the question, did the father forgive the son? What's the answer? Yes. Right? That's obvious in the way that Jesus tells the story. Like Jesus wants us to see like clearly the father forgives the son. Um, what if we ask this question? When did the father forgive the son? See, that, that becomes a little bit uh, more complicated maybe because I think, I think we might answer that question in, in different ways. I mean... 
we could say that the father forgives the son on the road, right? When the son's returning home and the father embraces him and kisses him and brings the robe and the ring and the fatted calf, like we're seeing um, forgiveness enacted in a way. But then I wonder if we could also say that we see forgiveness in the story when the father divides up his life. And um, like maybe in that moment, we see that already the father is forgiving the son. And I wonder if we were just to think farther back about the kind of father this is, I wonder if we could say that maybe this is just a dad who has always decided to be the kind of dad who forgives his children for everything, no matter what. Like maybe this, jet, this dad just made a decision. No matter what my kids do, even when they do horrible things, even when they really wrong me and, and really wrong each other, um, I'm going to be the kind of dad who extends forgiveness. And I think that's all true. I mean, I want to say that's all true. That there's forgiveness at every step of the way. But now what if we ask this question? When did the son experience the father's forgiveness? You see, he might be forgiven in the far country. In fact, I, I, would, I would want to say he absolutely is forgiven in the far country. It's already forgiven. But do you see, he will not experience that. He will not know that until he begins that journey home, until he comes out of hiding, until he confesses his sin. It's one thing to be forgiven, and it's another thing to know that you're forgiven. Jonathan Edwards once said something like, it's one thing to, what did he say? It's one thing to, to know that honey is sweet. It's like, you can, you can know that honey is sweet. Like, you could have, someone might have told you, honey is sweet. Maybe, maybe you get honey and you put it under a microscope and you see how it's like operating on some molecular level and you, and you say, oh yeah, of course. It's got to be sweet if it looks like that. Um, it's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing to just like take a bunch of honey and get it in your mouth just to like feel and experience the sweetness of it. And, and confession is a practice that is meant to get the honey of forgiveness into our mouth so that we can actually experience it, so that we can know it in that kind of way. Uh, so last week, Josh taught you some Hebrew, and far be it from me to um, not pick up that challenge and teach you some Greek today. Uh, so they, they say, by the way, when you're in seminary, never, never. They, they say, yes, learn Hebrew, yes, learn Greek, yes, use these in your sermon preparation, but never talk about the Greek words or the Hebrew words in your sermons. Um, but I went to seminary a long time ago. Yeah, the, the, so the Greek word that most often gets translated confession is um, homologeo. And you can hear, like, in that compound word, what it's saying. It's um, the same, and logeo is word. And so it's like the same word, to, to speak the same word. Or, or another 
way we would say that is to agree with. That that's what confession is. It's to, to say the same word or to agree with. So, so we might ask, like, what are we agreeing with? Who are we agreeing with? Well, um, when we confess our sin, we're agreeing with God. And we're agreeing with what God says most clearly, maybe, um, at the cross, where we, um, <laughs> where, where Jesus takes his life and where he divides it up. And um, we hear him saying, you are a sinner. There's no need to hide it. I mean, Jesus already knows it. He already sees it. You are a sinner, and you're a forgiven sinner. There is forgiveness for that. Um, there are riches of grace enough for that. You are, you are known, and you are fully loved. And, and so, um, you know, there's that place where we read that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. That's a that's a profound mystery, I think. But I think, but it's it's got to mean something like this: God is a God who, from all eternity, has decided to be the kind of God who forgives us, like. There's never a time when God wasn't Emmanuel, God with us and for us, God giving himself to us. Um, it's, it's not like God is withholding and then all of a sudden makes a, a decision to um, become Jesus. Like always, for all eternity, from before the foundation of the world, God has determined to be God for us like that. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he does it in history. And then um, he sets a table for us. And, and maybe some of you are in the far country even now. And, and, and the father and the son are just saying, come home. Like maybe you're in the darkness and they're saying, come out of the, come out of the darkness into the light. And maybe you're afraid to do that because you don't trust that um, the God you will meet in the open is a God who will receive you and will welcome you and will, will prepare a table for you and who really wants to celebrate. But let's pray.